Isn't it a grand honor to be able to come together this Lord's Day morning? The spirited singing, the wonderful prayers in which we've already led, the opportunity of studying the Word in the Bible study hour earlier, the opportunity, in fact, to now give some extended consideration to teachings from the Word of God. It truly is a blessed thing we each have to come together today in a way like this. As I look over the audience, again, we're so thankful for our membership and for the visitors who've come our way. And we hope each and every one can truly and honestly say, after we conclude the services, it's been good to be here. Today, we come to a consideration of a lesson that you'll notice is on the wall to my left. Hell. We all know the Bible has much to say about this particular subject. It's a subject that sometimes in our world is more often than not overlooked or neglected. It's a subject that, quite frankly, is not the most favorite topic of conversation. But yet it is one that Jesus frequently addressed and one He, in fact, included often in His lessons and teaching and doctrine. Today, I would invite you to reflect with me upon it because it helps us to remain confident in the light of just how much motivation we should have not to go there. You'll notice on this first slide, isn't it sad sometimes when you and I think about the cursory way often that hell is mentioned? How many songs can you just think of that come to your mind in which some singer highlights the fact that he or she has been to hell due to some relationship? I'm telling you, no, you weren't. Hell is so far greater in anguish, so far greater in intensity. So far greater in the unending character of it, nobody on earth has ever been through hell. The fact that you and I appreciate the strength and the greatness with which the Scriptures address it reminds us that all these songs have as much as anything perhaps watered down the thoughts so many have of this place. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, the Scriptures are so filled with warnings. One after another could in fact be oft repeated by you and me as it brings us to reflect upon the fact God's reminding us. In Hebrews chapter 2 beginning in verse 1, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? There is an opportunity for escape, but those that don't, what words of warning are listed with respect to what they shall eternally experience? Those words of warning close that particular slide by reminding us about the subject of hell. Let's devote our time this morning to reflecting upon what the Scriptures have to say. Matt read to us a moment ago from the ninth chapter of Mark. If you'd open your Bible there, we'll frequently be visiting that little set of verses. Mark chapter 9, verses 43 to 48. Might I suggest to you as we develop the sermon, though, it seems to me important to incorporate the very nature of the way the Lord referenced it. You might have noted how many times Jesus made reference to hell. He talked about it as a literal place. He referred to it as an actual place of existence. And so our first thought for the morning, hell is a real place. The August 1, 2009 edition of the USA Today paper listed a poll result. At that time, 59% of the Americans who responded to that poll said that they do not believe in hell. 
59% said they don't believe in it. That stands in stark contrast to the words of the Bible. You'll notice there are many who seemingly were quick to believe in heaven. And there seems to be this appreciation that by some way nearly everybody's going to end up there in heaven. But when it came to believing in hell, many, many just didn't even believe in it. I would ask that you perhaps think of the following. You'll notice in the language of our text this morning, hell is a place and some are going there. Again, maybe you've heard someone perhaps in a state of anger, perhaps in a moment of frustration say to someone, go to hell. They have not the slightest thought of what they were saying. There is no human being that has the power to consign anybody to hell. Only the Almighty God of heaven can do it. And He assured us here that He will send some people there. I would invite you to note the language again in verse number 43. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off, for it is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell. There's the phrase, Jesus said some are going to go to hell. And you'll notice he already highlights in language like this just how sorrowful, tragic, regretful, and intense it shall be. I would ask you to notice as we develop that further, we have also find in the Scriptures that it is the final destiny, if you please, the final location of those that are regarded as the unfaithful, those that are stated to be the disobedient. In the closing verse to Matthew chapter 25, you may remember the Lord had just given us a picturesque scene of the judgment. And on that occasion, He listed those on the right and those on the left. And each one was addressed. How sad it was for those on the left. He says, these shall go away into everlasting punishment. It's not just they're going away into an everlasting place. It's called an everlasting punishment. And you and I know punishment is not pleasant. When we think about the times in life that we have experienced punishment, maybe your parents thought the disciplinary measures of the moment for what you had done deemed some punishment, and you know it was unpleasant. And maybe there are other scenes in life in which you have felt the results of your own actions by way of punishment. Weren't you thankful that those times were only short-lived? Weren't you thankful they didn't last for a long, long time? Jesus said this is everlasting, eternal punishment. But not only that, I would ask you to remember the word from Jesus. In Luke chapter 12, verse number 5, the Savior on that occasion, as He spoke about the one whom you and I should fear, there were those of that day, and so it remains today, that they feared public figures and political individuals, and they feared various and sundry persons possessing authority. Jesus said, let me tell you who to fear. Fear Him that not only can kill the body, but will cast the soul into hell. Fear Him. If only our world could appreciate the urgency of a verse like that one. There is one to fear who has the power to send people to hell. Jesus said, He's the one you need to fear. As you reflect upon those statements from the Master Himself, I would ask you to notice where that leads us. We've so many times already today made reference to this word hell, H-E-L-L, hell. And that's the word that appears in your translation of the Bible and mine. That word literally in Greek is the word Gehenna. And that comes from a reference and an ancient 
representation of a phrase that means the valley of Hinnom, H-I-N-N-O-M. To this day, the Hinnom Valley is known very well in the ancient, in the, in the region of Jerusalem. It is a valley that rests just south of the city. It is, in fact, an ancient valley. In fact, even the Old Testament mentions it. The Valley of Hinnom, there's what it's called there, admittedly. But it was a place that was well recognized for what went on in it. I've just asked you to very briefly note the awful deeds that were done there. In fact, at some point, if you wish to do so, look through that Old Testament and look at the various places in which the Valley of Hinnom is referenced and notice the frequency with which the activities that occurred there were so very disgusting, so very terrible and awful. I've just asked you to notice that even some of the kings of the ancient people of Israel were not immune from the activities that went on there. I'll just list a few of them. Among the activities that took place in that valley was the various worshipful activities to the gods of Molech and Chemosh and the other Canaanite gods and goddesses. And here's what would happen. A couple would bring their little baby, or at least their youngster, and they would offer him alive to this particular god, and that would take place in the valley of Hinnom. It was a valley in which human sacrifices of innocent children took place. Can you imagine the cries of these youngsters coming out of that valley? Can you imagine the terrible atrocities taking place as youngsters cried of being thrown into the fire? Human beings did this to their children in the valley. It's hell. It's a place at least reminding us in principle of what went on and what will happen in regard to hell. These awful deeds that I've listed there in several Old Testament passages just highlight to you and me the significance spiritually of what Jesus used this valley to suggest. You see, the people of Jerusalem knew very well the valley of Hinnom. They knew its history. They knew what went on there. Jesus used it, though, in a far more significant spiritual way than that. Having highlighted the reality of this place called hell, let's now develop a fuller description of it. Using again, as much as possible, the New Testament as our guide. What about this place? Remember, we're going to try to make a distinction between that valley, that physical valley that was just south of Jerusalem, and this place called hell, Gehenna the place the New Testament mentions. Look at these descriptions of it. It seems almost every time hell is mentioned, there is an immediate recognition of fire that goes along with it. In fact, I found it interesting as I studied for this lesson that frequently the actual wording in the New Testament is the hell of fire. We think of it as hell fire. And yet that is literally that which occurs so often in light of the New Testament references. We've already learned about the literalness of this place. I would call to your attention that phrase in Matthew 18 verse number 9, the hell of fire. As you and I think about fire, as we contemplate for just a moment just how awful it is to be seriously burned. Maybe many of you, or at least some of you, have known the pain that goes with serious burn. At the, at the burn unit down at Vanderbilt, we sometimes see stories on the news of an individual who was seriously, seriously burned. 
And the picture is then shown to us about the regrafting of the skin. And he is interviewed and he describes the months and months and months of, any, of amazing pain. It seems significant, doesn't it, that fire is associated almost exclusively in this way with hell. It is a place of fire. It is a place I would ask you to notice. It's not just fire. Let the words of Christ be the guiding point. The closing few words of verse 43 of our text this morning, into the fire that never shall be quenched. The literal Greek word means it is inextinguishable. Nobody in heaven, earth, or otherwise can put it out. It is a fire that will rage forevermore. It will be a fire to never diminish. It will never go out. It will never be assuaged in any way. It's a fire that literally shall never be quenched. You and I know in our world in which we live, fires finally burn them, themselves out. A forest fire may consume thousands of acres, but it finally burns out. When a fire does engulf someone's house, it'll burn the house to the ground, perhaps, but it finally burns up all the things to which it can reach. But it will not be so of hell. It will never go out. I suppose your mind and mine struggles to appreciate the unending character, the unquenchable nature of hell. Once you're there, there's never a way out. And it'll never get less. It'll never be removed in intensity. You'll never find any moment of ease. You'll never have any comfort. You'll never, ever, ever, for those who are consigned there, never have any slightest moment of rest forevermore. It's a shocking thought, isn't it? And the Son of God tells us about this place. Let's go even further. We've learned about the association of fire. You'll notice, you'll also appreciate, to our mind almost immediately comes the word flame. When Jesus spoke about that scene in Luke chapter 16, a reference to the rich man and Lazarus. You and I remember that the rich man, as he died and left this life, he opened up his eyes in a place of torment. And he especially himself made reference to the flame that was with him. In fact, wasn't it true? He pleaded with Father Abraham to send Lazarus that he might dip his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm tormented in this flame. That's what he said. He himself made note he was at that moment in the Hadean realm in a place in which there were flames it is a startling thought, isn't it? You and I notice then these individuals who sing their songs about hell and they sing their songs like some momentary displeasure. If only they would pen a song about the truth of what the Bible has to say about this place. We need to warn men and women and boys and girls and all of us need to be reminded about the nature of this place so we'll be motivated with high incentive to live in such a way we'll never go to here. But not only that, you'll notice, you and I might be of a position to say, but just as it's true that a body here on earth is finally consumed, like we noted earlier, a house will finally burn down. There's no wood left for the fire to burn. But remember that when we leave this life, we are fitted with a body that is incorruptible in the sense it'll never be destroyed. It can burn in the fires of hell forevermore and never fall out of existence never remove itself from the character of what can feel pain. 
that incorruptible body is described in the closing verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Might we say in light of it that it does bring us to this. We've already said enough to highlight the weeping that goes along with a place like this. I would ask you to appreciate Matthew 25, verse number 30. It is a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping. To sob and lament. The actual word in Greek literally carries with it the thought of lamentation. We remember in the Old Testament how Jeremiah lamented over the destruction of Jerusalem. Here those consigned to hell are going to weep uncontrollably it would seem. For they now realize the sentence of what's before them. And they understand the nature of there's no longer any opportunity to change and repent. I can't get out of it. Weeping. It brings the thought of regret and sorrow. We'll develop that thought more in just a moment. But might we also appreciate this gnashing of teeth literally has the thought of grinding, biting, striking of the teeth. Perhaps you've heard someone talk about some extraordinarily excruciating thing that they, have, that they have experienced. If you talk to someone and some kidney stone attacks are far worse than others, admittedly, but for those who've had some of the most intense ones, something's put in the mouth to at least allow them to grind on something to help them withstand the pain. Jesus said, I'm telling you, when it comes to hell, those souls that are in there... There's gnashing of teeth there. Now, they are not fit with a body with physical teeth, but some kind of teeth described there by our Lord is made use of as He describes the gnashing, the striking, the biting of the teeth in light of the pain they're experiencing. Not only the gnashing of teeth, we find in that same context the Lord makes reference to a place of outer darkness. That place of outer darkness seems to signify as much as anything a separation from all that is light. God is light. All that He supports is light. These people are in hell. There's no God around. God's not anywhere to be found for they have rebelled and ignored Him to the point where their eternal sentence is now finalized. A place of outer darkness. As we close that slide, you'll notice... We already know that there are several in the Holy Scriptures who are consigned and shall be at the judgment put in this place. Those disobedient angels, including the devil himself, is going to find himself there. I would ask you to notice 2 Peter 2.4 as well as Jude verses 6 and 7. All those things remind us of this place called hell. So far we've noticed it is a real place. We've noticed also a description, and how terrible is the description. But there's so much more to be learned. Let's highlight this if we might. The thought of sensory perception. The thought of the senses that you and I now have. We know so very well that God has equipped our physical bodies upon this earth with the capability of experiencing things we can taste and see and hear and touch. There are all kinds of sensory things, and we are so thankful God has blessed us with these abilities. And yet in the life after this one, we notice that senses still are very much active. There is still senses. Did you notice a moment ago I made note of that rich man who was in the Hadean realm, and he himself pleaded that his tongue might be cool, for I am tormented, he said. 
Notice that was not a statement of Abraham with regard to his situation or even the God of heaven with regard to his situation. He admitted, I am tormented. He was feeling all the greatness that went with with his station. I'm tormented, he said. That torment perhaps leads us back to the text that we had read in our hearing just a few minutes ago. Jesus spoke on that occasion, if your hand leads you to offend, you'd be better off to cut it off. If by doing so you could live faithfully through this life and you could enter into heaven with one hand, that'd be better than having two hands to be cast into hell. And then he said the same thing again with respect to the foot. And then he said the same thing again with respect to the eye. Doesn't that highlight in a very definitive way the urgency of this consideration. We realize our life here is just for a little while, a few years at most, but yet we leave this life and all of eternity is before us, and even if this life is fraught with inconvenience and discomfort, wouldn't that be better than to to have the rest of eternity than the other way around? To have two eyes or two feet or two hands here and all the pleasantness of this life only to be cast into hell... Doesn't it highlight for us just what Jesus said? Hell is a serious subject. I would ask in light of that, you would appreciate as we close that particular topic and develop this unending one. I'm sure one of the most startling considerations that you and I face is, of course, the unceasing character of hell. That it doesn't end. That it doesn't stop. There's no chance to try it over in a sense of go back and redo it and maybe avoid the place. I would ask that you develop some of those things. Jesus himself said, the worm dieth not. Go back again to that valley just south of Jerusalem. Not only was it a place in which there were sacrifices, human sacrifices of children, it was also the well-known garbage dump of Jerusalem. You and I know today there are landfills in which the garbage or the trash is developed from homes that ends up there and it's buried. Well, Jerusalem, just like any other city, had to have a landfill, if you please, or at least somewhere where the trash could be thrown, and this was it. And so in that valley south of Jerusalem, the trash from the city would accumulate and they would set it on fire and burn it to consume and get rid of it. You'll notice in that consumption, in the nature of what was there, there of course were carcasses. And there was all the blood from the temple that was collected. You and I know what fresh blood will do. It'll attract vermin and varmints. As those varmints would appear in that valley, they too would be burned. And the stench, no doubt, was just awful. Jesus said, the worm doesn't die in hell. Even though it's true here in this life, anything that has flesh will eventually die, but in hell it's not so. There's no ending to the punishment. There doesn't come a time when it stops. Surely as we develop that point again, we'll notice just how strong the language was that Jesus used. Unending. I suppose it's fair to say that in this life, one of the things that gives all of us so much hope is that no matter what the circumstance comes, we know we can bear through it because it only lasts for a little while. Health problems or some other difficulties in our families, 
we just keep in mind the thought, it's going to get better sometime. But notice in hell, you can't pray that. And there's no reason to think it because it will never get any better. It will never get any lesser in terms of the agony. Surely in light of all those things, we close that slide with those final statements. I would ask you to notice that the same wording that's used to describe the unending nature of hell is used to also describe the unending nature of heaven. If we look forward to being forevermore in a place called heaven, that same kind of description of unending nature describes hell. It won't end either. Maybe all that is to say this. We've looked at these sensory ideas. Doesn't it point us then to a state of hopelessness? Picture it with me for a moment. There is coming that great day of judgment. Every single individual who has ever lived is going to be present. Jesus assured us of that in Matthew 25, 32. Every single individual ever who has lived will be there. But consider this. There will be those on that day who will hear language and who will hear wording that will be presented somewhat like this. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And they will then be moved or consigned or sent into a place. And Jesus said, go to hell. It will be the final abode. Can you imagine the terror of that moment? To realize all of eternity is before you. All your opportunities are behind you. There's no longer an opportunity to change anything. Your sentence has been finalized. And so off you go. Never more to find pleasantness, never more to find comfort, never more to find a place of any ease or rest. Surely all those things point us to this, and it would certainly seem, in the light of the Word of God, that one of the most sad statements will come by way of memory. Think of it this way. Do those individuals who will find themselves in hell, will they remember what went on in this life? Will they remember what opportunities they had? Will they remember the availability that they did have to the blood of Christ? Will they remember? Let us look at some of the thoughts like this. It certainly seems as if memory will be used by the God of heaven as another aspect of the terrible punishment Remember, the rich man knew very, very well about the state of affairs in this life. He knew very well about what he had had in life and what Lazarus had not had. And now the roles were reversed. And not only that, he knew very well he had five brothers on this earth. And he knew very well he pleaded, send somebody, namely Lazarus, to go and tell them not to come to this place. Maybe for the first time in that man's life, he became evangelistic, but it was too late then. He wanted his five brothers not to come to that place. May we quickly say, anybody that finds themselves in hell will so much wish that their other family members won't be there. They don't want anybody to go through what they're going through. They won't want anybody to experience it. They won't want anybody to feel the torment and the agony unendingly. This rich man had some memory. It would seem that he could easily recall the opportunities he had in life. He could have been kind to Lazarus, but he wasn't. He could have provided for Lazarus, but he didn't. 
How many of those sent into hell will remember sitting in the pew of a church building and could have obeyed the gospel but didn't? How many finally sent into hell will remember the precious words of somebody, maybe a friend or loved one, urging them to think seriously about their life and they never made any changes? That's bound to be one of the sorest thoughts about being sent to hell. You're going to remember that. And think about remembering that for all of eternity. I didn't have to be in this place. Somebody loved me enough to talk to me. Somebody loved me enough to encourage me to change, but I didn't do it. I can't blame it on that person, and I can't blame it on Jesus, and I can't blame it on God. They tried, but I was too stubborn. I was too set in my ways. And look where I am now. Memory, you notice, leads us to appreciate maybe one final thought, and the lesson will be yours. So according to the Bible, who is it that will be sent to hell? And let's be specific. Who will be sent to hell on the day of judgment? Well, you'll notice certainly we've already highlighted the devil's going to be there. We know that because of the language of Revelation chapters 19 and 20. I would ask you to note the way that that description is put before us. It is very telling. Specifically, I would ask you to notice Revelation 20 verse number 10. Near the very end of the Bible, the inspired writer put it like this. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Among other things in that verse, we again notice the unending character. Notice day and night forever and ever. But as far as who was sent there, we notice mention is made, isn't it, of the devil. So we know Satan will be there. But you'll notice that wasn't the only one mentioned. He says, where the beast and the false prophet are. Now, as you and I remember the book of Revelation, we recall that beast that is described from chapter 13 onward, really. And we find that that beast, again, is one that finds himself in hell. But even he's not the only one. It also says the false prophet. So notice, here are individuals who perhaps have taught religious things. They have encouraged people to do what they thought was right. They may have done much kindness and much good by human perspective. John says they're in hell too. False prophets. Maybe that causes many in our world to scratch their heads. Perhaps we're getting an initial inclination. Many may be sent to hell who our world would never think will be there. Closing part of our slide. Let's develop that like this. Isn't the key element and the key idea surrounding the topic of obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ? It doesn't matter how much, quote, good one may or may not have done. Goodness alone won't save. It never would. It never did. But you'll notice those that do not obey the gospel, what is said about them? Let's revisit those words of Matthew 7, verses 21 and following. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, for many shall say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I say unto them, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Here is a scene then, and a rather notable one at that. 
Jesus said, just because a person calls me Lord or makes reference to me in some way does not mean he is saved. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. He then went on to say, those who do my will. He made reference to those who cast out devils, those who preached in his name, those who did various and sundry things. But notice to those very same ones, he said, I never knew you. Here were individuals that were religious, but everybody is. Here were individuals who acted in some way in light of religion, but that wasn't nearly good enough. They hadn't obeyed the gospel. Because Jesus said, I never knew you. And remember, we're baptized into Christ, and He knows us guaranteed at that point. So clearly, these had never obeyed the gospel. What was their fate? Cast into hell. You and I cannot say enough in significance of what is involved in the obedience to the gospel. It is literally not just a life-changing moment. It is a changing of all eternity for that individual. And to obey the gospel changes everything. You're now bound for heaven, not for hell. You're now in light of the nature of God's precious church, and you weren't before. You may notice in light of all that in 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul several decades later addressed the Thessalonian church and said, To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on who? Them that know not God and obey not the gospel. doesn't matter how many sermons you or I may have heard. If we've never obeyed the gospel, we're lost. That's what the Lord said. We can then confidently say that all those who never obeyed the gospel will be sent to hell. Furthermore, you'll notice when we obey the gospel, our name is placed in the book of life. And another way the Bible describes that is every person whose name is not in the book of life will be cast to hell. Revelation 20:15. You begin to see in light of all this that there's a whole lot of people who the world would claim are so good, but yet due to the fact they haven't obeyed the gospel, they will not go to heaven. Have you obeyed the gospel? Are you obeying it faithfully every day? Am I doing the same? One last set of thoughts. We even have this description that some even in the church, at one time faithful members of the church, will find themselves in hell. Because they apostatized. They walked away from the truth. They were faithful at one time, but they died lost. Don't let that happen to you, and may it never happen to me. It requires a constant examination, doesn't it? To make sure we're walking in the faith. As this lesson closes, it has in many ways been a 25 or 30 minute invitation. Right now... Let us all examine ourselves. If you're not saved at this moment, that might mean that you've never obeyed the gospel. And we've just learned what your fate will be unless you make that change. Or maybe you have become a Christian, but at this moment you're not faithful. Please don't continue in that state. Jesus died that you might be saved. He died that you might not go to hell. There will be an awful lot of people an awful lot of spirits sent to hell that Jesus died that they wouldn't have to go there, but they've made the choice. Today, if we could be of assistance to you, this song of encouragement has been chosen. And right now, 
if you'd like to put on the Lord in baptism or if you'd like to return to your first love so that you don't go to hell, why not do it right now while together we stand and sing?